Welcome back. It's Jay Scott, and it is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Thanks again for giving us a listen and taking time out of your day to check us out and what we're talking about. Please, please write us a review at the end of the episode. Reviews are important to podcasts, so uh, please take the time. And again, we always appreciate it. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the, the official podcast network for metallica so check out their great podcast on our platform and you can visit pantheon podcast at pantheonpodcast.com as well as twitter instagram and facebook at pantheon pods and you can do the same with the hook rocks on all three of those platforms just search up the hook rocks please set your app to automatic download wherever you do podcasts so you get the latest episodes right to your phone as well as the joy of listening to our previous episodes we just Man, uh, celebrated our four-year anniversary with the great guitar player Nita Strauss from Alice Cooper. We also did our 500th episode with Dax Nielsen from Cheap Trick. And recently, we welcomed the up-and-coming great blues rock artists Leilani Kilgore and Aaron Coburn, who are about set out on tour. Of course, I've talked about Leilani in the past. She opened up for Buddy Guy in December. She's a fantastic guitar player, so please check her out. We've also had some great episodes. We had Chris Voss from the record company. We also welcomed throughout the year Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, Richie Kotzen from the Winery Dogs, George Lynch, Kip, Kip Winger, Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy, and many more. So please check out all these wonderful and fantastic episodes. And we always like chatting about rock music. And we've got... A longtime friend, back to the show today. It's been way too long. He is your favorite luthier in Hermosa Beach, California, right off the Strand. We've talked about Eddie Van Halen and his custom guitar work as he was when he started out with Van Halen and throughout with his own branding of guitar. And then we talked about the unique and simplicity of ACDC with Angus and Malcolm Young. Prior to this episode, which we're going to talk about another legend, a band that is my favorite, had this guitar player just shape their sound as one of the greatest in top rock bands of all time. Many consider them the greatest of all time. And the guitar player, oh, the band is Led Zeppelin, and the guitar player is Jimmy Page. And I'd like to welcome Mike Longacre from at Mike's Guitar Parlor in Hermosa Beach. What's happening, man? How are you? To be back, Jay. It's uh, it's always a fun show, and even your other stuff, the George Lynch one, Kip Winger. It's like, oh my god, that's another Alice Cooper like alumni too, right? Yeah, yeah, way back with uh, got on the Constrictor album, I think it was. Way yeah, back. yeah, that's right. I, you know what? Great, maybe I'll make that connection. I forgot about that. Funny when you said that about you just had another guest that you know she was in Alice Cooper currently, right? Is that what the yeah. deal was? Yes. Just awesome. But, you know, another great subject. And uh, I'm sure this will be the one where you get lots of people that that know everything about them. They should be the person that you're you're talking to today. I just know what you do, like just, you know, a superhero. I think Jimmy Page is probably my greatest uh, gift that I got later as a guitar player to, like, learn later what he was really doing. Like, you know, they were great. Zeppelin was great. But once I was playing guitar and I could see what he was accomplishing and and what he was setting out to do and able to produce and everything himself, he just he was able to create 
such an amazing body of work for us to still learn from every day as a guitar player. Well, let's kind of start out what we know about Jimmy. And obviously he was a, is a well-known studio musician in the UK. And that's kind of where he yeah. was from Paul Jones, who, you know, when they later formed Led Zeppelin, but he was well-known in the studio. I think he did the rhythm guitar on, I can't explain uh, by the who is one of his uh, great studio uh, oh, yeah. And then he was in the Yardbirds. He replaced Jeff Beck after Jeff Beck replaced Eric Clapton. I think that's how the story goes. And then he started Led Zeppelin. And he is regarded as one of the greatest of all time and well-deserved. And you know, it was right around the time where you know he and Hendrix were really kind of shaping along with Clapton and Beck, too, as well. And a lot of people for a long time debated whether Hendrix or Page was the better guitar player. As far as your opinion goes, what were the differences between Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page? Uh, I think, you know, their, their greatest gifts probably would have been the textures that they wanted to go get. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Page was more about the, um, using like that Indian influence of tunings and, Hendrix was more of the uh, the psychedelic sounds like, you know, big choruses, flangers, and I want to sound underwater, you know, like help develop those kinds of sounds. Really, um, I think texturally they both wanted to to get what was in their brain down on the record, and I think that's where they were similar. But I can't say one was better than the other. They're just the two totally different stylings, you know. They they, they wanted to. Uh, I think Jimmy Page was more produced. I think that's that's for sure. Now, when you say produced, what what does that mean? I, I just think Jimmy Page like made a like a a storyboard before he even started a song. So like everything was about. It's going to start like this. It's going to build like this. And these are the textures I want. And it's everything was very planned out. I mean, I know, you know, Robert Plant was instrumental in, you know, the lyrics and and uh, the sonic drive behind that band is all the drums and John Paul Jones and everything. There's so much going on in that band. And um, Zeppelin, I think, was way more. Uh, a thought out structurally than Jimi Hendrix was for sure. In those early records with Zeppelin, Jimmy's blues influence really was apparent, right? I mean, it was, it was basically, it was, I mean, especially Led Zeppelin one and two, where it was really blues based. Zeppelin three got more into the acoustic. And that was always the amazing thing about Jimmy was, he had this tone with blues that was just incredible and so, you know, identifying. And then him on acoustic guitar was so it was more, it was like a lot smoother, if that makes sense. Like, you know, like he had like people always call him sloppy on electric. I call that emotion. But on acoustic, when you hear him play, it was like he was dead on. And yeah, articulation. The incredible. articulation was totally different in with when he played the acoustic versus the versus the electric guitar. Well, you made you made a, a reference to to the Yardbirds. I think that's like you know all the stories we've all heard. Like he he was the one that introduced Jeff Beck to him, and he got in there and gave him that Telecaster as a gift for getting him into the Yardbirds, and then it. It was painted over and over and all of these things. And that became his number one. But he kept he had already started even really young to uh, try to develop a style that people would recognize him as and like tried to do things to the guitar aesthetically that like put mirrors on it. And so he could reflect light off into the crowd and and he wanted to set himself apart. And when he left the Yardbirds. He had already played a couple of those songs that would be Zeppelin one and it was blues based. And that was how we kind of got Robert Plant was, this is what I'm trying to do. You know, here's some Joan Baez sing this, you know, but I'm going to play it a different way. And, 
And so it was blues from the beginning. And uh, his his master plan, as I understand from all of the interviews that I've seen, were blues-based, try to melt uh, acoustic and electric in one pile, which no one did. And that was how he was going to set himself apart. And I think that's, you know, that's a formidable thing to do in that time, right? 69, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, just I, incredible. He was he was a guy that was very specific about this is what I'm going to do with my sound. This is what I want my look to look like. Everything, all his clothes, all that stuff. It's like, you know, there's a reason we drew Led Zeppelin on our peachy folders back then. It was like it was a thing, and no one was doing it. They were like the first ones to have a big ass jet, you know, and. I mean, they weren't the first arena rockers. That was the Beatles, right? Like doing whole stadiums. But they were the ones that were selling out everything night after night and having to do bigger places. Just just amazing. I mean, when you look back at it, and the superstars of Bonham and Plant and John Paul Jones with him, oh, my God, it's like it's a superstar basketball team or something, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we talk about his playing, and we're going to get more into that. Yeah. But as far as, like, what he meant to Gibson and the Gibson guitar, because when you see a lot of the iconic images, I mean, at least early on, he, he used a couple of different styles of guitars. He used a, a, a Telecaster, and then, but primarily throughout Zeppelin, it was the Gibson. What do you think his impact was to the Les Paul? Well, the Les Paul was kind of uh, like a means to an end, right? He had the the telly was his number one go to. Most of those early recordings are Telecasters, and um, you know he would borrow J two hundred Gibsons, and uh, uh, he had the nineteen sixty Les Paul Custom, the fabled one that was stolen. You know, uh, they were on a flight from the U S to Canada or something. And the guitar just got lost, but he did use that a lot. What he wanted to do was have something that wouldn't feed back as much as the telly live and had heard other people using those Les Pauls. And he got that 59. And, you know, once he did that, that live show that was filmed, that was it, you know, it was playing that guitar and, it just kind of iconically got stuck in everyone's brain. That pickup actually, I think, failed in his 59, and they had to have it rewound by, I think it was someone, a Dan Armstrong or something, who was like the big pickup guy at the time. And uh, and he put it back in there, and he's like, it's as good as it's going to get. It's not the way it was, but he ended up using that forever. And even like the 12-string, 6-string that became iconic as well, that was just a result of all the overproduction he did in the studio. How can I play? You know, I think he used a Fender 12 string for the, for like Stairway to Heaven, the, you know, epic, you know, parts where that happens. But he had to have a way to get from that to the, to the solo seamlessly live and that was the tool that made it work. So that's where that came from. It wasn't like, Oh, I need to get this and write a song for it. Or, you know, I like it. It's almost like the song forced him. Oh yeah, absolutely. On that guitar for that one, for sure. And he used those Dan electros and everything. Those, you know, those goofy little lipstick, they're like pressed wood. And, and I don't think anybody today would play those things if it weren't for all of the recordings he did with that. And, showing how cool and versatile they really could be. He knew how to record. I mean, he was, he was doing that. He was probably seven to 10 years younger than every studio musician when he was doing it in his teens and was developing his sound and his chops. And he was self-taught too. I don't know. He wasn't like a, a big school guy, you know, he was, he was, and I think that helps a lot because he was chasing his own sound and his own styles. And then when people would ask him to do stuff live in the studio and they'd be just kind of let him go. 
because he was kind of known for being able to do that. He could he could pull from all of these these things he had used to build who Jimmy Page was going to be in the future. It's really it's really neat to go back and listen, like you said, doing stuff for the Who. Who gets to say that? Yeah, I mean, when you think about his career, you know, be being a studio guy, I think he was in some bubblegum rock band before he became a session guy and then he had this vision of zeppelin as the story goes and he you know met john paul jones and i think the original singer was going to be terry reed i think uh, that was it there were a couple of them that didn't do it yeah and they couldn't and he needed it to happen right away and terry recommended uh, robert plant yeah he went to see him in a show somewhere and Bonham was backing up Plant, you know, in in his band, and and uh, that's the you know that's the history. But yeah, I heard Bonham too was also like a he was playing in some other like money making deal, like he was playing drums for like a you know some job where they used him to just bill and do his thing, and it was like a good paycheck, and he didn't want to leave it. And it was not until they all got together. It was like, come on, kind of what you said, Robert Plant dragging him to a, a practice or something. And they banged out, I think, Train Kepper Rollin or something. And that was it. Like, it's so cool to think about all those guys. That is like a super group, like yeah. from the, from the get go. John Paul Jones was like, was piano playing and he, all the keys and all of the, uh, the bass playing songs, skills, singing, everything had, he was a perfect, you know, match for that bottom end with Bonham. Oh my God. Yeah. No, it, it, he's probably one of the most underrated members of the band. He is the most underrated. For sure. And because I, I don't think Led Zeppelin is what they are without, without JPJ. For sure. I mean, who would have put a recorder on, you know, Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> But, you know, that's this thing, like, you know, he had this double neck because of Stairway. And Stairway is, if not the most, one of the most iconic songs in the history of music. And there's these images of him with this heavy double neck that, you know, because he wasn't a big guy either. Yeah. You know, and he's got this big guitar around him and he's playing this. And I've picked up a double neck years ago and you know i'm almost six two and i was like man how do you like walk around this is crazy (laughs) you know so it's just for him to play that you know drunk and high most nights too as well uh that is remarkable in itself just just awesome like and all those guitars he, he had so many i don't i think he's one of those guys that never sells a guitar He's he's got every single guitar he ever had. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. As he moved down with Zeppelin, you know, and 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 they started to create more. Obviously, the first two albums are are really blues based. Led Zeppelin three kind of saw them bring more of a folk feel to their song to their music, and it got to the point where they could do anything after Led Zeppelin three. And then you hear some of the rhythm and some of the beats. On Led's Up on Four, it becomes more in Houses of the Holy, and then really evident in physical graffiti is what you talked about, those Middle Eastern elements of music tied in with the blues, which when you when you talk about that and you hear someone doing that, there's like there's no way this could work. Yeah. It does. Well, he's producing too, so he could just do whatever he wanted and execute it you know like this is what's in my head and i want to get it on tape and and uh he wasn't afraid to grow they got so big they could do whatever they wanted to you know you you weren't at the mercy of the record company saying well we want this or we want that and so they weren't afraid to try new ground and there'll be people that say oh that record's not as good as those or the newer ones or anything like it's it's kind of like the van halen Groups, right? <laughs> Love yeah. them, right? Even all the other stuff he did later, right? With Tony Franklin, all the firm stuff with Paul Rogers and everything. How can he do wrong with that, too? Even the and even he, the stuff with David Coverdale was yeah. great, right? What is his signature 
guitar lick or move or playing style? What what do you think it is? Um, it's definitely all blues boxes. That's his thing. And um, you know, you you alluded to you know some people call him you know fumble fingers or whatever. I didn't even appreciate any of that until much later in life. But uh, I think. My favorite thing is what you alluded to earlier with the acoustic, like his his structure of of moving lines acoustically to me are just unmatched. I think it started a wave of that kind of writing too, and it's still blues based. Yeah, I find when he's playing acoustic, or when you know a Zeppelin has a song, whether it's that's the way or tangerine or, you know, obviously stairway and the rain song. It, it's like this, this band that in this guitar playing, I should say his guitar playing on electric is, is bluesy. It's, it's chaotic. It's feeling it's emotion. And when he goes to acoustic, it seems like it's like so peaceful and, you know, there's there's so much breath in in between the notes and the playing. I, I just find it remarkable. Yeah, but there there's so much more. Like when he got more into the depth, you know, of like Hangman is really you know dissonant and and Friends is probably one of my favorite. I think it's like open C sharp or something kooky, but. um it's funny. There was this. There's a piece you could you could look it up. It's this uh, old um, Philharmonic writing guy named Holst, and he had this this whole piece about all the different planets. It was called Planets, and it was the God of War, and it is friends. Like it is almost verbatim, and he does it with that open tuning. It's the coolest thing. Check it out sometime. Just put on. Just like type in the planets by Holst as the god of war, and then put on friends, and there's there's no question that's what he was doing, and it is very eerie, and it's acoustic, so it has all of this tension and uh, using using the acoustic in a different way. <laughs> it's really neat. You mentioned tension, and that was the other thing I think that Page is really known for is. I know Hendrix was very psychedelic and it created a mood and Beck, obviously all those greats did. But one of the elements that Page brought with his playing was this atmosphere of tension, like build up, you know, like when you hear Kashmir and yeah, epic tales. Hear, yeah. yeah. It's like it, it, <laughs> it, his, his tone and and the way he plays is bringing you on a journey. It's bringing you on a path to where you don't know. Um, I, I don't know if there's another guitar player that could have ever created Kashmir in the way he played and the structure of it, and and just that constant that constant driving tone, and with along with the beat from Bonham. And what's also remarkable about remarkable about that is. His his ability to say we not to have a guitar solo in the middle of Kashmir, yeah. just keep it going. I mean, that was one of the things too, because a lot of guitar players at his level have the ego; they need to put a solo in there. And there's a lot of great songs that Zeppelin has where there's no guitar solo. Yeah, I think it's I think it just lends itself to what I was saying earlier, where he's it's a storyboard before he even starts the song. Like, what am I trying to say? And then how am I going to go about saying it? And then putting the song together and then getting it on tape the way that I hear it and getting everybody else on board in the band and everything. It really, it's, it's, it's a lot <laughs> to ask of a band to, to have someone with that much vision and, uh, like you said, how do you check that ego? You're the producer. You're the you're the engineer. You're the one getting the sounds of the guitar on tape, and um, and then uh, creating a story that doesn't doesn't miss out. There was a lot of people that said live even 
they were one of the only bands that were able to go in and get a jam going between a song and come back and know when you were going to lose the crowd, which I think that says, says a lot. I do a lot of shows where it gets a little out of control on that stuff. Like we just going into a jam, you know, like, like grateful dead kind of yeah. syndrome. I had okay, 13 minutes of the same four chords, but we're going to play solos over it. Yeah. I have bootlegs of some of those recordings and I have bootlegs with 40 minute versions of whole lot of love. <laughs> 40 minute versions 48 minute versions of dazed and confused um which you you listen to you see the time stamp on the on the bootleg you're like dude how am i gonna listen to a song with 48 minutes and and like you said they have like they break it down and they start doing medleys in between the you know the, between the solo and the, and, and the chorus and they go they do all these blues numbers and these solos and and that was why, if anyone ever asks, why did they, did they not continue when Bonham passed away? It was because they couldn't do that stuff with anybody else because they knew each other so well that a lot of that stuff was improvised. And the magic. I don't know any drummer today. Like, I'm not that old. I mean, there's guys that are that are hardcore Zeppelin people. I would say he was one of the best drummers of all time, like making things happen in a way that weren't happening at the time. Just, just super powerful. Like you said, and a beast of a drummer. Uh, yeah. He hit so hard too, you know, well, he hit the drum so hard and, and usually, you know, you're exerting a lot of energy or most drummers when they did at that time, hit the drums hard they would exert so much energy, it would take them out of the song almost. Yeah. He was just able to do it with his wrist, his pounding. It was with his wrists and his hands. And that's why he was able to kind of do and be so versatile like he was, which was just incredible. What you're saying, there's a, there's a thing you can look it up on YouTube of the, the drum track with the overhead mics and everything of him doing fool in the rain. And he's grunting and moaning and everything through it all on the hits. It's so cool. And then that drum beat ends up being most of what was Rosanna from Toto. That and that was Picaro's, like, says it. Yeah, I stole that from Fool in the Rain. And then I just added the buddy or the, it wasn't buddy guy. Who was it? It was Bo Diddley. Yeah. Boom. Boom. But it's, it's really neat to hear. Like those drummers, like he, Picaro was a, an amazing architect of drumming and he would, was giving props to Bonham. <laughs> so I, I've told the story on here before about that full in a rain track when I played it for my son. I go, Hey, check this out. And he's looking <laughs> at me. He's like, what's the big deal? It's just a loop. I go, that's no loop. <laughs> yeah. There's <laughs> no two lines alike with that guy. That's guy. That's a guy just sitting there and having an incredible pocket and timing and just doing it without recording a little bit and just keep looping that. And that's what they do now. But that was all done authentic. There was no looping in that, which is makes so it it's like walking through the mud. That track, yeah, so good. When you hear Page and you hear his progression throughout Zeppelin and even afterwards, it always seemed like he kept chasing something which a lot of guitar players, a lot of great guitar players reach their pinnacle, reach their peak. And then they kind of stop and they kind of settle in with what they do and their signature. He kept exploring and he, and he, I think he continues to explore and look for different ways to, to get him going, whether it's obviously all the stuff in Zeppelin and Zeppelin is one of the most probably evolved bands from their first album to their last album. They're two completely different bands. Oh, I a lot of, a lot of that's John Paul Jones, but a lot of that is Jimmy with his style and incorporating like the middle Eastern elements into the blues and all that. And then going on with the firm and doing the outrider album, which was a great album. And, and then obviously with Coverdale page, he's always trying to search for something. And I think, what sets him apart from all the legends is his constant curiosity. No, wanting to be inspired. Like he's just not, 
you know, comfortable staying in the the now. There's always some, there's a place to grow. Hopefully all of us say that. I mean, if you already did Led Zeppelin 1, why would you do Led Zeppelin 1 2.0? You know, it's, if you got that craft and you know how to dig deep and create something fresh and new from what inspires you, to me, that's, I don't care if you paint or you sculpt or whatever, that's, that's what you want. Unless you're the commercial guy and you want to just, wow, we did so good with that. Let's just do another one of those. You know, he's too much of an artist, even hearing him talk, you know, like, at a guitar shop or something, you know, where he'll sometimes people, I think Fender did a really good one. It was when they were doing the Jimmy Page Telecaster. I think you can look that one up where he's like going through. I bet he wrote a song from walking through the factory. He's, he's like, just, he's got his phone and he's like, I never even imagined in a million years, this is what it would be like. And you could just see, he was just over the moon and, talking about the guitar and how it got, you know, all the different, you know, metamorphosis that went through from when Beck gave him this cool guitar and then he wanted to have this persona and painting it. And, and then he had somebody house at his house or something and he was an artist and he came back from his trip and he was exhausted. And the guy's like, Hey man, I got a present for you. And he handed him the guitar and he's like, wow, this is beautiful. You, this paint job you did is great. Where's my guitar? That's it. This isn't my guitar. This is it. That was the one Jeff Beck had given him, and he had painted over the whole thing. And he tried to do some shows, and he's like, I can't play it anymore. So he had it all stripped completely down and uh, redid what it is. And that's what the one that Fender was trying to do again, the Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck guitar. But. It's just neat. He's always trying to to make himself better, or not better. I mean, he is striving to do that, but I think he he was just going for a persona so hard, and he fuck he did it. Those dragon pants and the stars and the bow, you know, we didn't even touch that. Like using a bow on his strings, just it was so cool. Remember those images of him? Yeah. And those dragon pants and his shirt's wide open and he's probably in his 20s and he's just rock star. Unbelievable. Iconic. Such a good image. Iconic. When you think of physical graffiti, obviously that's my favorite Zeppelin album because there's so many great songs. But when you think of all the elements of the guitar playing on that album, it really is and it really shows off Jimmy Page's diversity. I mean, you've got Cashmere on that yeah. album. You've got Ten Years Gone, which is this beautiful cascade of of a, of a melody throughout the song. It's just completely beautiful. You've got this blues, iconic blues song, and In My Time of Dying, that is just blows my mind. And then you've got like Black Country Woman on there too, but the acoustic, and you've got you know the Rover with the slide guitar. It's just that is to me the quintessential page album of guitar because it just shows off everything in his arsenal. And there's so much of it. Yeah. So much music. And, and the stories, like you're saying, the stories are all in there. What song is Achilles last stand? Just unbelievable driving, driving magic. It's just so cool. It's such an amazing body of work. Like you said, the the metamorphosis of them from the first to the last album that they did. And uh... Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And even not being afraid to go ahead and break out with Coverdale and you know, the, the firm and other bands that he did. He did another one. I think he did the jam with the black crows. Yeah. Oh my God. I forgot all about that. Yeah. How did he capture his tone? I mean, we know the, fe- the, the telly and Gibson and, you know, obviously the double neck was more and more for a live performance, but you know, was there a certain equipment, a certain amp, you know, he had an arsenal of amp recording right and then he wanted to get all that sonic magic live um i don't think so i think he used a a bunch of stuff live i don't think it was one thing or the other i think you know john paul jones pretty much stuck with his same bass rig that he used recording live but i think he just was doing what he wanted for that particular show you know at that particular moment, maybe you know, from album to album, it was different live, and yeah, sonically, he had to have it be the way it was, you know, so much so, that, like, like you were saying, like, get the double neck guitar, it had to be a way to execute what was on the record, you know, that came first. As far as the idea that he's sloppy, because we hear that a lot from fans of these guitar players that are very precise and technically sound. I mean, Paige was not. And I think that to me was, is what makes him so appealing is because when you do hear him play live, he, he is a rock guitar player, but he brings so much of the heartfelt emotion. That yeah. It's more like a band yeah, they, they made blues great. Like blues is all emotion, right? And it's all like improvising where, you know, Paige is obviously blues based, but rock guitar player. And he's bringing that emotion to the plane. And that's why there is that dribble or that slop. And I think it's all emotion. I think it's so rock and roll when you hear. Him. I mean, I think that in itself makes him the quintessential rock and roll guitar players because it's not neat. It's not tidy. It's. It is Jimmy Page. Yeah, and it's right where it's supposed to go. Like, it's in and out when it's done. He doesn't keep doing that stuff over it as the song is progressing beyond that solo section. If it even had a solo section, you alluded to that, too. But I think it's first and foremost having the whole image, like everything's there in his brain from the first note to the last note. So it's orchestrated totally by him. Everything's where it's supposed to be, whether it's fumble fingering or articulated 
amazing guitar structure or storytelling, like the epic tales of those cashmeres and everything. Just awesome. When you hear his guitar playing as someone who's around guitars every day, what do you, or, or, or how do you define his approach to playing his attack? Um, I think he just uses everything that he has in his toolbox. I don't think he has like everything has to at least have this in it or that in it, or maybe I'm misunderstanding the question, but I think he, uh, he'll choose the right tool, right? He clearly has a lot of tools in his toolbox, every guitar you could ever want for any kind of tone. And that's what he's going to use for it. You know, some of the, some of the later stuff, with uh with the firm was so metallic and almost sounded like some of it was recorded inside a giant coffee can you know it's what he was going for and has those guitars to do it so i don't think he would ever try to get like the les paul just because it's the 59 number one to to uh execute a guitar part i think he uses different things for different areas that's for sure People say that he's because of the dribble, the slop, he's a product of the studio and he can't match what he does in the studio live because what I don't, I don't know sometimes what that means, so to speak. I, I like the, the live version of things because that brings out the emotion. Oh, God. Yeah. I think, you know, like hit the recording that they did that, uh, broke them basically in the seventies was some of the best lead playing he's ever done. All the stuff in song remains the same and like, it's great. It doesn't have to be anybody but you at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not Jimi Hendrix, you know, I'm not like even later, you know, I'm not the black crows guitar players. That was what was so beautiful. He could come in and not be standing in for someone. It was, coming in and adding what Jimmy Page would have done then on that record. It's really, I think it's powerful. When you think of those greats in the 60s, Hendrix, Clapton, Beck, Page, what is the biggest difference Page has that the other guys don't? Um, I think he was more open to being outside the box of you know, blues based, but the, the dynamics that he was going to be using to, to, uh, tell the story. So I think Clapton, you know, clearly a great blues guitar player, but I think that was really where there they drew the line there because Clapton didn't want to do any of the stretching blues stuff that they were doing. And I think that was, you know, the end, the beginning of the end for sure. And, you know, that's someone that's really rigid in his ways of these are the way the blues are played and this is how it's going to be done. And Jimmy clearly showed that, you know, there was other ways to do it. <laughs> and Hendrix is a big blues guy, too, but he was more about the abandon. It's fun to watch live Hendrix, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, no one was doing that stuff. It's crazy. And Beck too, you know, with and it's also you know kind of oh, yeah. a tribute to to Beck in in uh, Beck Spolero in how many more times? Yeah, where there's that bridge where he kind of rip, takes from Beck Spolero, um, which caused a lot of friction between the two of them for for a long time. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know the uniqueness of Beck was he was this blues based guy, and then all of a sudden went in a fusion, and I think he's probably. Out of those four, the closest to the spirit of Page, in that he was always searching too, as well. Yeah, and he had clearly made that identifying, uh, like a something that was going to single him out. Like it became his signature. You know, that one hand on the tremolo while he was picking, and you know, almost a warbling sound that some people would have said was like fumbling fumble fingers you know it's kind of the same dynamic it's you love it or you hate it you're you're either all in or you're not there were those those people with zeppelin too you know and 
later in life, it's that's why I was saying it's the greatest gift for me late because it wasn't until much later I realized what he was actually accomplishing in that stuff and then had to learn it. I had to learn all of it, you know, all the tunings. Like, how the hell do you do that? And, you know, thank God for YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it is true. I mean, when you think about all the songs and the different styles that he did and the different tunings and, you know, the different approach, it was basically a master class of, of playing guitar of all the different styles because he was able to incorporate all that stuff in into their music because when you look at his contemporaries at the time i mean clapton had that reckless abandon of playing right that reckless abandonment of playing in cream you know you think of crossroads you think of all that great stuff in that band and then after that he never went back to playing like that it was more like you said this is how the blues is supposed to be played i'm going to stay within this box and not venture out of it well it's just what he saw it as more of a classical classical blues like this is the way blues is supposed to be played and and uh, clapton is a is an amazing amazing guy in in his whole whole stories like there's just Stories about that for one of your other shows, I'm sure. But uh, I think they were just so vastly different that it it made it great. We got three, four, right? You had Clapton, Beck, and and Jimmy Page all there at the same time that were you know playing either in studios and Sullivan, who was the you know he was like the more country. Jim Sullivan was the other studio musician at the same time, but I think Jimmy Page was probably five or seven years younger than him still and was already in the studios. If it was rock, Page was doing it, and if it was country, Sullivan was doing it, and and they had their own chops they were building over all that time. By the time he got to play in a, in a band, you know, he, he had a chance to hear what Clapton was doing and what Beck was doing, and that's cool, but how do I make my own identity and just stretched out? And I think him, his biggest contribution was taking acoustic music and electric music. And also he was one of the first guys to get away with changing tempo of a song. <laughs> like that's the cardinal rule, right? Don't change the time, like in speed, not just cut time or something, but he was doing it. And and it was working. He laughs about it in some of the interviews. Like, yeah, he actually did it and got away with it. Nobody beat us up on that one. A couple of songs. That, that moment in rock history, when you think of those, obviously there's Hendrix, but when you think of Beck, Clapton, and Page, I mean, that at that moment is ground zero for rock guitar. And everything that kind of came after that, you know, probably up until, you know, Eddie Van Halen came along was so centered around those three and, and obviously Hendrix, the fourth, it, it, that had to be, I mean, to, to push an instrument forward, like they all did and have each have their different approach and their different sound and tone. It's just yeah. a, an amazing, amazing moment. rock stars in their own, like just persona, like right. persona alone, like a photograph of any one of those guys. It's like, superstar you know and that's that's what made us all want to play guitar yeah i got all the images in here yeah no it's just it's just um, when you think of that moment in time and you think of the instrument because i've always said on this show that when you just look at guitar on its face right and it's you got a guitar in front of you it's it's a limited instrument by itself yeah for sure But but it's the player that unlocks what goes beyond those limitations and to have those guys all around at the same time, completely, you know, eviscerating the walls that have been put up by previous guitar players. It's just, I I don't know if music fans really appreciate like that moment in the late sixties and early seventies. Yeah, it was, there was nothing like what they were doing. And, and it's that unbroken ground is, you know, someone will do it again with something like, how could anything be new now? 
but there's still people doing some great stuff. I got to share an image with you and your, your people here in the shop. Cause this, this thing of Jimmy page is just too much. I'm going to see if you guys can see it here. This is the green room. That's a Clapton guitar. But this back here is the image. Yeah. That is like what it was all about for me. <laughs> oh God. Amazing. It's it's why that's part of the reason I play guitar. It's because of those pictures of God, him, Gary Moore. Jesus. More or less Paul guys. It is interesting that he is the Les Paul guy. You know, he was a telly guy. And that was just a tool he needed because the telly wouldn't do it. And it just ended up the photograph heard around the world kind of thing. It's really cool. As far as Stairway to Heaven goes, it's regarded as the greatest rock song of all time, but his solo is also regarded as the greatest solo of all time. And it's almost like a song within a song, a story within a song played on guitar. Oh, for sure. What makes that solo so amazing and so inspiring to people? There's so many things. And this is just, of course, this is just a guitar luthier's opinion. Right? Everyone's got their own. I could get flamed on this one. But I think the structure of the song, the placement of the solo, the build up right before the solo, everything, it's like a pedestal that he built for that solo. So it was already gonna be neat. Right. And then he didn't, for whatever reason, didn't go with that chaotic solo. He went for more blues bass. Like the first run is Chuck Berry, that went on and on and on, but slower. Wow. So he stuck with a build up of it, right? And then it ends with those the three notes. And and then you get Robert Plant right away. So it's bookended with the story and ended with the crescendo of Plant just laying it out. And then you know it ends with that just wailing guitar over it in the background, just single notes or double stops. No, I think it's might even be slide, but uh, I think the solo is so epic because of the placement number one and because of the tone and the buildup and then the way it's that it's bookended by it's just great music on all the way around you. The song is another epic tale, too. <laughs> How long is that song? It's eight minutes. <laughs> God bless eight minutes. <laughs> when you say the greatest rock and roll song of all time, it's eight minutes long. It's, and then most rock songs are three to four minutes long. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's just amazing. And what's cool about that solo, like it's kind of you touched on it, is there's so many elements in it. There's so many elements in the song, and the solo mirrors the buildup of the song because it starts out a certain way and right before plant comes back with the vocals it it's another pedestal it's another platform that he raises the guitar solo to like it kind of it's slowly building up just like the song is slowly building up yeah and it's like this layers and layers and layers yeah for sure but i mean that's why it is what it is that's why you go to Guitar Center and they say, no stairway. Because <laughs> every son that we both own, <laughs> they both want to go in and do that. It's just, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't listened to Stairway in a while up until recently. And I started listening to it again. And I just became more impressed with the solo just because of the way it is. And then you hear it in the song remains the same live version. I've got bootlegs of it. And that's even, it's even extended more. Like he yeah. does a lot of improvising. And that was such the, the great thing too, is everybody, you know, not everybody, but there are people that say, Oh, he can't match what he plays on an album live. Well, it's because he was self-taught, as you said in the beginning, 
And he loves to improvise. Yeah. So just playing, to... like you said, for the moment. Yeah. Like, but and I think the keynote parts of solos he would put in there, like yes. that your ear needed to hear because that's who he was. Yeah. You it, know what else he... is cool is that it's so timeless that in the last two years, I probably taught that song four different times to four different students that were under the age of 15 that asked me for the song. That's it's 2023. <laughs> just, just <laughs> sorry. Keeping track. It's pretty neat. That gives me chills. What you just said to me is like, yeah, this song is from... they ask for it. It's like, how do you even know what that song is? Was like 1971 just... was the, was yeah. when it came out. So it's 52 years old. Look at you get a gold star for math today. <laughs> um yeah that's amazing is it, it, and again even my son who plays guitar and you were the first one to show him his first guitar, uh, his guitar chord you know we were talking about zeppelin one day and and he's like one of his he's in his band he's one of his members one of the band wanted to cover zeppelin and he's like we're not covering zeppelin yeah. And he was like, why? He goes, we're not worthy enough to cover Zeppelin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of fun. It, well, it's because everybody, like, puts them on a pedestal. Like, yeah. you've got to be the goods if you want to play Zeppelin. you got to be tight and you gotta be, you got to be good. Or you got to sing like Robert Plant. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no. that's, that's, that's the whole element of that band was, you know, obviously – Page and Plant are the are the faces, but going on beyond them, but but Jonesy and and Bonham, like you said, absolutely super it, group. It's just blows my mind. And you think, Thank God for I, you think if as I've gotten older, I become less and less interested in them. But what's so unique about their music is every time I hear their songs, I find something different. To this day, I find yeah. something different in there. Yeah, you'll hear something. You're like, how have I missed that? Like, you know, in the background. But that's that's the beauty of music. I mean, really stuff that, that affects you and resonates with you. And you can be inspired. You just feel better during the day. You can write songs. You you can get be more productive at work and everything because you're in a special headspace. I love, I love it. I'm so grateful to have so much music in my life. Yeah. And it's like you dragging it out of us. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, music is just, there's so much discovery about music. And even if you've heard a song hundreds of times, you'll still find something that maybe you didn't hear before, or you may feel something you didn't feel before by listening to it. That's what's so unique about the art form. When when you think of Stairway and you think of that being the legacy of the band and pretty much the legacy of Jimmy Page too, do you think it's do you think it's the correct definition of Page's legacy is that song? Uh, yeah, I think so. When you hear him talk about it, it's not just me. I think he sees that that was the pinnacle of him getting his ideas down and executing exactly what he wanted and then having the magic of Robert Plant writing the lyrics, like as, as he says in Paige's words was he's just sitting in the corner and he's just scribbling in his little notepad and he had 90% of the lyrics while he was just playing it out, how it was going to go. And, you know, John Paul Jones saying, Hey, we should put a recorder in here. And he's like, I really wanted to, keyboard part and they ended up using it and so all of those things he was he was making this epic tale musically and then robert plant wrote those lyrics that you know for for the most part is the most iconic zeppelin song ever his guitar also spoke to almost like another vocalist in the band oh so many guitars so many pieces and like you said like a tapestry of of music and 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 it builds and builds and it's layers and layers and layers from the first like acoustic guitar with nothing else to more and no drums till 
you know, midway through the third set of verses. Just awesome. I think that's definitely the defining Led Zeppelin song in answer to that question. What's your favorite song by Jimmy Page? Uh, difficult to say friends is not my favorite song. That's just, that thing is so, has so much tension in it and the tuning is so cool and you can execute it with one acoustic guitar and a group of people. Again, you're not Robert Plant, but everybody thinks they are when they're singing along. So you don't have to sing as loud when they're all singing. But I think that that's probably one of my favorites. Achilles Last Sand, the intro of that is just awesome. There's so many. Everything on physical graffiti. <laughs> you talk about friends and i mentioned like the tension that he was able to create with the playing and with the arrangement and that song is a great definition of that tension because you feel like something is going to happen like you just feel yeah. like this it's almost like a, like a movie where the yeah. music is building up building up to something and there's that tension you know someone's gonna pop out and do something and that friends just does that over and over again Oh my God, it's so good. Well, Mike, once again, it's been a blast, as always, yeah. talking these uh, great legends of guitar playing. You know, we started with Eddie Van Halen, then we did Malcolm and Angus, and now to Jimmy, Jimmy Page. And uh, I can't thank you enough for your time and your thoughts. Always and- a pleasure. Always inspiring. I'll probably have to listen to Zeppelin for the next week, just on every single, you know record and pull out the weird b-side stuff and check it all out again it's great to talk to you jay great to see you great to talk to you thanks again mike i appreciate it are you you visiting soon my the plan is to be out there between christmas and new year oh beautiful couple months yeah i can't stay safe and uh thanks again for an opportunity to be on a great show it's really it's always inspiring and fun to hear the people speak on it i'm glad you have a a funnel to get those people to us out here in little TV land. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Mike, it's been a blast. You can visit Mike Longacre on Facebook and Instagram, and those will all be in the notes of the show. So you can click on those links and go visit them. And if you're in Southern California, in the beach towns near Redondo and Manhattan and Hermosa, his shop is right off the strand in Hermosa. You can't miss it. Go yeah. check it out. It's a beautiful gallery of guitars. It's got, you walk in there and your mouth just drops. I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. So do that next time you're in Southern California and it's been way too long, but we'd like to thank Mike once again. And of course, yes. And I'm Jay Scott. This has been another episode of the hook rocks. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe, take care of each other and we will talk soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.